Well, Lucy Hawking has popped into the reading corner today to talk about her latest book, Princess Olivia Investigates the Wrong Weather. Lucy's a journalist, a children's author, and a science educator. She's well known for her series featuring George and his exploits in space, which she co-authored with her father, the late Professor Stephen Hawking. The new series will appeal to a slightly younger uh, reader. Uh, It's all about an investigative princess called Olivia. And when her father is deposed as King of Alice, Olivia has to leave the royal palace. Well, yes, and carry on a new life as an ordinary citizen. (laughs) So at, at school, she discovers an interest in science with her newfound friends. And she sets out to answer the most pressing questions facing the world. So anyway, after that hash up, Lucy, I'm delighted to welcome you into the reading corner. Well, thank you so much for the kind welcome. And it's lovely to be with you again. Thank you for having me in the reading corner. I feel that we need to catch up with you a little bit because it has been a while since the last George book. How did that series end and what has now channeled you into writing again for children? Well, the George series was such a huge piece of work. You know, it's six books which tackle some of, I mean, the most complex abstract concepts in science that we know through adventure storytelling. And it was huge fun to do. And it involved this whole range of scientific voices by the end, because we've got so many contributors to write about their specialism, their specialist field of research, or their specialist experience in that there's a brilliant young woman who trained as an astronaut to go to Mars writes an essay about what that was like um so when I came to the end of the the six books you know my father very sadly passed away in 2018 and you know we missed him terribly and it wouldn't have been right to continue that series without him however I still felt there was room for one final book um and what I what the idea I had was to take all those brilliant essays, all the science content we created for the whole series and put it together into one volume. And so that came together to be called something called Unlocking the Universe, which came out in January 2020. And that's a really big book. We didn't actually realise until we collated all that work together, how much content, how much just science content there was in the George series. And so that was a lovely full stop to that series and time to sort of put it down and say goodbye and there's a feeling of loss you know when you're an author who's worked on a series for kind of over 10 years and you've lived with these characters and had all these adventures you know you need a little bit of a grieving period but then I I had this new idea for completely different completely different style of book and sort of started work on it put a few tentative ideas together and that has um, now come I've got my copy of it has arrived this morning. So it's the first time I've actually seen it as a book. And that is Princess Olivia Investigates the Wrong Weather. I want to talk a little bit about the story first, because there's so much for us to get into in terms of themes and issues and ideas in the book. But the story is going to be the thing that pulls the readers in. And it is compelling. And it's a, you know, you turn the pages quite quickly as you're reading this story. So Princess Olivia, who I, is, I think, one of my favourite characters I've ever created. Princess Olivia lives in a mountaintop palace with her mum and dad, who are the king and queen. And she's very smart. Um, 
and she loves reading and she loves the Royal Library and she doesn't really have any access to education. Um, her parents want her to learn lots of things that they feel a young princess should know, like how to play the lute or table manners. And she thinks this is all incredibly boring. And she's been trying to create her own education by reading the books in the Royal Library, but they're all quite antiquated. And so she has this sort of awareness that there's this whole world out there that she's desperate to be a part of but because of her position as this young princess she's just not allowed to and she's tried to escape before but she's always been brought back anyway one day you know the palace is stormed and there's a palace coup and her mum and dad are told right that's it off the thrones out you go and um, they leave the palace to get on a bus and of course they've never been on a bus before they don't even know how to hail a bus and they go off on this winding road down to the capital city that she's never seen before and suddenly she's in the world this is her greatest adventure and she can go to school which she's been desperate to go to school and to meet other kids and to have friends but of course nothing is quite as she expects it to be it is all quite a challenge suddenly she's living in a tiny apartment with her mom and her dad who haven't adjusted at all to the fact that they are no longer the king and the queen mm. um but olivia is catching on quite fast and she meets her two new best friends who are ravi who's very smart and very graceful but he's quite street wise and he sort of knows what's what and he takes olivia very much kind of under his wing the moment he meets her all the other kids are kind of like well we don't know who you are you're part of something our parents tell us was not good this is a new world order we don't want you here but Ravi doesn't care about any of that he's like you're my friend and that is that and um, then the rather extraordinary and brilliant figure of Helga who's terribly serious terribly clever terribly straight talking And they form a little team and they decide that what they're going to do is become investigators and they need a mystery to investigate. And they decide they're going to do this via science. And this is Mm. the most important thing they could be doing because the weather has gone wrong. Mm. And this is what they set out to understand. As I say, lots of serious issues, but it is funny. This story is funny. So when... The family leave the palace. The nursemaid, the nanny, rushes after them with a pillowcase stuffed <laughs> with teddy bear and crowns and various things. And they're standing at the bus stop with this. Yes. I mean, the improbability of that is hilarious. And then the fact that they hang on to them. They don't sell them to yeah. actually make their lives easier. They they think they've got to hang on to them to wear as these ornaments right. of their past. Right. So. It's very funny. We sort of see Olivia like getting dressed to go to her first day at school. And her mother is trying to persuade her that she must wear a tiara. And Olivia is saying, I am not wearing a tiara to school. It is not happening. I think because I'm terribly fond of my characters. And even if I put them into difficult situations, I still want to do it in a gentle and funny way. Obviously, they are having a difficult time, but I want to portray them sort of with love because I find them incredibly endearing and they are trying to adapt to a new way of life. But they're just they're not able to do it very well. Mm. So that's one thing. The other thing is that for me, tackling these big, important topics, trying to break them down for kids, trying to make things accessible. The story is always the key. 
obviously I know what it is I'm trying to talk about at a level that kids will find interesting and that they will be able to engage with and that isn't too overwhelming or you know too frightening but it has to be wrapped up into a story that somebody would read if they had zero interest in any of the scientific issues I'm trying to talk about you have to be able to read it purely for the story mm. because being didactic, being over-prescriptive, being over-educational, it just doesn't engage. And so therefore your message gets lost. So I do try and make it comedic, make it interesting, make it engaging. You've got to like these people and want to go on the journey with them. Absolutely. Otherwise, it, do- it just doesn't work. So I want to ask you, you hinted there at, you know, not making things too frightening for children. Mm. And there is a proliferation of books about climate crisis, you know, but readers of all ages. Mm. I wondered if, you know, setting it, it is a fantasy land, you know, Alice, it is our Mm. world, but it's Mm. sort of removed from it a little bit. Is this part of the sort of protection aspect of what you're doing? It is because making it a fantasy land, I think, is important because it's not here, it's not there, it's not it's not anywhere. It's not a place that actually exists. Obviously, from a storytelling perspective, I control the geography of the country, which is easier for me because I need certain features of mountains, glaciers, I need a coastline, you know, and therefore I can put them where I need them to be for storytelling purposes, which helps. But it also has that lovely fantasy element, like which I think is so important in children's literature, this idea of being able to escape into another world. I loved that kind of reading. I loved C.S. Lewis. I loved this idea of being in a fantasy world where things happened in a different way. They were recognisable enough that you could relate to it, but it wasn't actually your day-to-day experience. And I think that's really important. I think it fires the imagination. It improves creativity. It uh, helps the kids to want to go on with the text. So it's useful from a literacy perspective as well. And there's something about that joy of childhood reading and having that fantasy escape and the value that that gives to a developing mind in terms of helping them create their own fantasy scenarios. Because also, I mean, the future, our future is a fantasy scenario. And we have to start thinking about that in terms of, well, what is this future that we want to live in? How are we going to create it? Where are we going to find the solutions to these vast, weighty climate change problems? You actually start with a, a prologue that reads like fairy tale. Was that there right from the beginning? Or did you decide it, it to put that there in afterwards? It was there. Um, well, it, it was a little bit further into the book because when I did the first draft, I actually started with Princess Olivia refusing to wear a tiara on her first day to school because I just loved that whole image of just the absurdity of a little girl saying, I'm not wearing a tiara to school because, you know, very often it's the other way around with a mother saying to a child, you're not wearing a tiara to school. Um, and so I sort of turned it to, turned that around. One of the things I found with this book, which was something I had to learn in storytelling terms, with the George series, because I was writing for an up for older older readers, I could play a bit with my time frames. And with this book, I realised that because of the age group I was writing for, it needed to be a completely linear story. 
And so I can never really go back in time. You can't have any flashbacks because it gets confusing. You need to start in a place and move forward entirely. Whereas with George, I could kind of hop back and forward a bit more. I couldn't do that with this book. So it was more of a reordering that that had always been there, but had come in a bit later. But then that ended up switching places Mm -hmm. with the primary school scene. It works so well, actually. And it does give the story a different kind of depth by having that there because it's a different it feels like a different register and therefore it feels like it takes it away from the ordinary into something that has even bigger import somehow uh, i suppose i'm i'm fascinated by big stories you know if you think mm. i grew up as the daughter of a cosmologist who was telling the story of the origins of the universe so maybe that's had um, some influence on how i see stories but the main aim is always to have it through the eyes of somebody who's around the age of that the reader will be mm-hmm. so that they can, however fantastical or in the case of the George series, however far away, however abstract or bizarre the fantasy world becomes, it's through the eyes of a young person who is relatable, mm-hmm. who is um you know that of the right age group who has the same concerns about friendship about parents about school about the environment um so that the reader can kind of catch on to that person and be with them as they go on this extraordinary journey mm-hmm. i mean when i was a child i used to be terrified so i'd read all these books i mean enid blight and i don't know if, even know if we're allowed to say that now but you know these these children who'd have all these adventures and i was terribly jealous i was like why can't I have an adventure? That's just just so unfair, you know, because mm. I desperately wanted to do those things. I wanted to go off on a big adventure. So, Just while we're talking about seeing things through Olivia's eyes, one of the things that struck me actually quite early on in the book is where they come away from the palace and she sees the city for the first time, not from a distance, not from high above or through rose-tinted mm. glasses, And she notices the dirty water in a puddle and it's got this sheen on it, which I'm guessing is oil and pollution Mm. and so on. And it occurred to me really that this is a point about how it's the poorest people that these things have the greatest impact on and other people can cosset themselves away. I mean, it is a bit like putting your head in the sand, Mm. but that's what happens. That, that's exact. Thank you. I'm so glad you said that. That's exactly what it's meant to be. That when you're on top of a mountaintop in a palace, which you can read as in any scenario where you are wrapped up and protected from the impact of climate change, it's easy for you not to see it. It's easy for you to believe that it's all fine and none of these predictions are going to come true and none of these terrible things are going to happen. But when you are outside that very protected, affluent environment, climate change is having terrible, horrible impacts on the lives of the poorest people in the world. And they are the ones who are suffering now and who stand to suffer more. So by taking Olivia on this journey where she comes out of that environment and she goes into the other world, she goes down into the city, she realises that she hasn't been able to see. And obviously later on in the book, she realises that this is the fundamental problem with the grown-ups, is that they don't want to see it. Mm -hmm. They are quite happy not seeing the problems that climate impacts are having on the world that they live in. And they're actually quite happy to go on living 
metaphorically or figuratively or, or literally in in the mountaintop palace and just ignoring it and that very much speaks to the whole sort of like the Greta Thunberg movement of all these young people saying Greta Thunberg saying your house is on fire why can't you see it it's because you don't want to so that's the sort of key realization that she has as to how the problem has been allowed to get out of control. Now, like many children, she has lots of questions Mm. and sort of really chimed with me that the science class isn't really the place that you ask certain questions. Questioning is a good thing, but only within certain parameters. That's right. This is part of the problem for Olivia. She starts asking questions when she gets to school, which is what she's been longing to do. But then she finds that these answers are very unsatisfactory or they're only partial or for some reason people are ducking because she's asking difficult questions. She's saying, why can't we drink the drinking water? What, what, what's wrong with that? Why is carbon dioxide being released into the atmosphere? And, and no one really wants to give her a straight answer. And so that's what prompts her and her two friends, Ravi and Helga, to decide they need to go off and investigate them themselves. So that's when they form this society of investigators mm. who are going to go off and solve the mysteries of the world through science. Now, in a similar way to the George books, we do have some fact files that are interspersed through the story. I mean, some are written by you and some you have other leading scientists that have written these for you. Tell us about some of the topics that are covered. Well, I'm very, I'm very, very proud of these editions. As I said, it's something I learned from the George series is the value of having scientific voices in a book so that you're not just relaying information you're actually tapping into the viewpoint and the experience and the research of somebody who has spent you know their academic career working on these issues and you know I have three writers on this book Isabel, Mira and Tom all climate and earth scientists and they talk about issues in such a clear narrative and engaging way about rising sea levels volcanoes about smog and one of the the really one of the really important ones is this brilliant essay about extreme weather which is written by Tom who is the new professor of climate science at King's College London and it was just he was so enthusiastic about writing they were all three of them were so enthusiastic about writing for this age group i mean these are very busy people they do not have spare time And yet they were all prepared to say, no, I want to talk about these topics in a way that young readers can understand. Um, And I think that really adds something to the book. It's interesting you should say that. I've had a few scientists on the podcast who have written nonfiction books for children. So Professor Ben Garrod, who's an evolutionary biologist, and uh, Jess Wade, who works at Imperial college and studies nanotechnology and there seems to me to be a body of younger scientists coming through who really want to communicate science to a much wider audience sort of taking it out of ivory towers and academia they want to pass that on in ways that are relatable and I think that's fantastic because they have the knowledge They have the communication skills, they have the public engagement skills, and they know how to get across to a young audience and talk to them about these really important topics. I mean, when a scientist like that goes into a school and gives a talk, it's life changing for some of the kids they talk to. I mean, there's some quite well-established research to say that children who 
have no scientists in the family or parent, their parents don't know any scientists or they never come into contact with a science, working scientist during their school career, will just never consider science as a career because to them, they have literally no concept of what, what does that look like? What does a scientist do all day? You know, do they have normal lives? Do they live in ivory towers? Do they have massive heads um, and just wear lab coats? You know, there's all sorts of strange ideas attached to what is a scientist. So having these outgoing scientists making a, this massive effort that they are currently to communicate with a general and a young audience is it breaks down those barriers mm. and it can inspire so many young people and help open their minds. Mm. So I, I don't know if I'm allowed to blow a little trumpet here, but of course, Dad kind of started it with Brief History of Time. Um, yes, because I read the books. <laughs> there you go. And it had to get even briefer before I understood it completely. Yeah, yeah, you're not alone. Don't worry. He, 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 knew, he, he knew that too. We, 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 we teased him about it a lot. Um, but that was, you know, when he first proposed that he was going to write a popular book about physics, a lot of scientists weren't happy with him at all and said, well, this is not, a, you can't do this. You, this is, you're breaking the code. Mm-hmm. This is not right. But it was a brilliant way to start because really the phenomena of popular science publishing does start mm-hmm. with brief. In publishing, it really is. Definitely. Um, the best legacy of all, really. It's, it's the best, le- yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no better legacy than than education, is there? Mm. I did want to ask about Olivia, going back to mm. Olivia for a moment. Uh, were you consciously trying to say something about encouraging girls into STEAM subjects through having her uh, as your character? Yes. I mean, in the George series, we have George and his best friend, Annie, but I very much wanted to have uh, have the lead character this time to be a girl. And that was important to me that she was the one who comes up with the ideas and who breaks down some of the complex issues and, and works out what they're going to do. And how, she's the driving force behind. Without Olivia, there would be no investigation society. Nobody would, you know, even Rabbi and Helga, her two best friends, they've sort of twigged that the weather's going wrong. When she starts asking them about them, they're like, oh, yeah, there was that really big flood last year when they, like, saw a sofa going down the main street or, or, on water. Oh, that was strange, wasn't it? And, you know, but they, it's only when she arrives that they start putting two and two together going, hang on a minute, this isn't right. Hmm, what's going on here? So that was very, very important to me. Mm. There is a little bit in the book where they sort of learn what an investigation is. They learn about observation mm. and building a hypothesis and uh, testing that out. And we do have this image, really, of a scientist being somebody who does things, you know, observes the world, tests things in the laboratory. Now, I'm really interested to know how important reading is for a scientist. Well, I don't know that I can really answer that because um, I'm a science writer, not a scientist. So obviously Mm. I can't speak from experience. I um, have been a devoted reader all my life. I mean, my mother says I taught myself to read by the time I was three. And I have been a bookworm always. I mean, I was very like Princess Olivia. My parents had a massive library of books that really weren't for kids. And I just used to read my way along the bookshelf, one after another, after another, after another. But from my father and his colleagues, my father loved reading, but obviously it became very difficult for him as a challenge due to his disability. But he liked to be read too. And I think it's hugely important. I think reading and literacy skills 
are so important for everybody because it's a very fundamental way that we take in information about our world or we learn about other ideas or how other cultures, other people think or operate, what happens in different scenarios. You know, we only have so many opportunities and so much time, each of us in our lives. But through reading books, of course, we can all live a million lives if we've given enough time to read about them. Well, I'm going to urge everybody to pick up a copy of Princess Olivia Investigates the Wrong Weather. There's so much more in it than we've talked about, but we should leave things for people to find out for themselves. Uh, I guess listeners might be interested to know whether this is the start of a series and whether you're able to share even a tiny little bit of what might be coming next for her. Absolutely. Yes, I'm very happy to say it is the start of a series. So book two, we will meet Olivia and Ravi have um, gone to stay with Olivia's Uncle Cassandra on the island in the bay that he lives in. He um, is a surfer philosopher. He invited them for the school holidays and they are picking up litter off the beach as their chore when they meet Captain Max, the mysterious pirate, and his parrot, Pieces of Plastic. And Captain Max invites them to join him on a trip on his ship to look for buried treasure. But they never find the treasure, but they do find the actual treasure of the sea, even if they don't find the buried treasure they were looking for. And that's called Princess Olivia Investigates the Missing Fish. Absolutely fantastic. Lucy, thank you so much for popping into the reading corner today and talking about the new series. Oh, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be with you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Puffin Children's Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.